Welcome to Truth Transit Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori, and today I wanted to discuss uh, some things in regards to the Sabbath in particular, some of the things that were going on during the Reformation. I've been doing a, a little bit of studying in regards to the Reformation and the Sabbath question and, and really the, the history of the Sabbath and looking into things just starting from how the Sabbath sort of was lost and things like that. Uh, but mostly in regards to, uh, at least for today's program, wanted to discuss some of the things that happened during the Reformation that, that I that I found that I think is very, very important. Because it seems that the, the mistakes that we as human beings feel are, are little things many times become uh, bigger things later on. Or, or one weakness, it might not be a little weakness, maybe that's not the way of putting it, but a weakness, a, an Achilles heel, a point of error that later on doesn't appear to be paid for at the time, but later on, people pay dearly for it. And you can see that really in our own country. Think about the the very, very sad, very, very sad issue with the founders when they were framing the Declaration of Independence. The Lord impressed upon Thomas Jefferson and whatever, whether you believe Thomas Jefferson was a deist or whether you believe Thomas Jefferson was a godman or whether you believe he was somewhere in between, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the, when, when he was penning the Declaration of Independence, one of the five individuals that helped frame it, it was impressed upon those men's hearts. I believe some of the other ones were Roger Sherman, Robert Livingston, John Adams, and I can't remember the last one, but the framers of the Declaration of Independence, there was five total, and they came up to the issue of slavery. And one of the problems that they had with King George III was that, was that Britain openly practiced slavery in some of the colonies, particularly the northern colonies like Massachusetts and New York and some others there. They wanted to outlaw slavery in those particular colonies. And King George III said, no, you can't do that because we practice slavery in Britain and you are one of our colonies, so you can't, you can't make a law that goes against what is the, the common law, if you will, of the land. Well, when they were framing the Declaration of Independence, that was one of the grievances that they put down. And in the original Declaration of Independence, they, they had a mind to remove slavery from the United States completely, from the colonies and from this new nation that they wanted to form. Every single colony voted to and agreed to remove slavery from their particular colonies, their states, what would become states later, except two. There was only two that refused to do it. And I believe it was South Carolina and Pennsylvania refused to get rid of slavery. And what happened? They had debates. They decided that it wasn't the time. And unfortunately, because of that error, 
because of that mistake, that horrific mistake, that sin, that iniquity, America is still paying for that transgression right up into this very day. If those men, if all of those men, and many of them, many of them did listen to the, the voice of God, but Satan was obviously there too. And that was a kink in their armor. And Satan took, took advantage of that foothold and made it so bad that it was a, the state's rights issue and all of this later on with the Civil War until 500,000 American lives had to pay for the awful, horrible transgression of slavery. And now... Right up into this very day with the issue of slavery and racism and all these things that have happened in the past, there are people that want to completely dismantle America and replace it with socialism and communism because of that sin. So these sins, they come back. They don't just stay. Uh, these errors, they're not harmless. You know, the, these errors, these transgressions, these sins, they don't just stay in the past. Many times these things come back to bite us and... This, what we're going to talk about today was Satan's foothold, and it has everything to do with the, the Sabbath issue. Now, for those of you who are aware, in the book of Revelation, the messages to the seven churches, there are three ways to interpret those messages. One is that those messages were specific messages for those specific churches at that time, which is true. Also, you can interpret them by seeing that the warnings, the reproofs, and the blessings from God in those messages to the seven churches are actually timeless. They are principles that Christians have to deal with uh, many times in, in every age, and it's good counsel for all individuals in all times. That's also true. Now, the third way of interpreting those verses is to look at it through church history, that they are actually periods of time. Now, without going into all the details of it, in regards to what specific messages are to what specific periods of time, the messages to the church of Sardis, which starts in Revelation chapter 3, we understand to be from right around the 95 Thesis, the nailing of the 95 Thesis, the Reformation era. So right around the nailing of the 95 Thesis in 1517, all the way through to 1798. And the fall of the Roman Catholic Church, or the deadly wound, if you will. That's the time period of Sardis. And this is what the Lord has to say to that church. It says uh, from uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. It says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, and thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. So, with all the wonderful, amazing things that the reformers did there were obviously some weaknesses there at least one because the lord says i have not found thy works perfect before god 
And that doesn't mean that the reformers are not going to be in heaven, that they, they were rediscovering, they were coming out of darkness, they were rediscovering all the wonderful truths and the solas that they gave us and understanding that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sole authority. And unfortunately, unfortunately, one of the things that they hung on to, one of the traditions that they hung on to was the Sunday uh, the transference from Sabbath to Sunday by the Roman Catholic Church and the worship day being on Sunday. That's something that they didn't deal with. And it's interesting. If you go to Psalms chapter 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So there's a connection there. I have not found thy works perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. So I have not found the law perfect before God. There was a an Achilles heel, an error, a weakness, a sin that wasn't dealt with. And it's not that it's not because it wasn't brought up. Even with Martin Luther himself, one of his very powerful theological colleagues, his name was Karlstadt. And Karlstadt basically uh, proposed the idea of the Sabbath. He even wrote pamphlets on this around that time and Luther refused to accept it. And again, I don't think that means that uh, Luther won't won't be on the sea of glass at the end of all this earth's history because again, there was so much new information coming out and the Lord is very patient and merciful towards his children. But nonetheless, it was an error, it was a mistake. There are some things that Luther and in, in all the great things that the Lord did through this man there were some mistakes that he hung on to, like consubstantiation and different things like that. But the Sabbath issue was something that he actually rejected. And that's unfortunate that he did that. Because that led to, actually, what that led to was a strengthening of the Roman Catholic position against the idea of sola scriptura because the idea of it is very sound however if you are basically if you're a hypocrite if you are saying sola scriptura but you are actually practicing tradition then your argument becomes very weak as you could probably understand well that's exactly what happened there's a very famous debate between martin luther and Johann Eck back in 1519. The debate actually lasted, if you can imagine how serious these debates were, this debate actually lasted about 18 days, 17 full days, but I believe it ran into 18 days total. So you can imagine how serious some of these debates were and it was on different various issues. Got a quote here from uh, Wikipedia on the Leipzig debate in Leipzig, Germany. It says this, The Leipzig debate was a theological disputation originally between Andreas Karlstadt. That, that, there's that name again. Remember, Karlstadt is the one who found the Sabbath again and tried to present it to Luther, and they ended up parting ways over this issue. But at this time, they were still together. 
So this was a theological disputation originally between Andreas Karlstadt, Martin Luther, and Johann Eck. Karlstadt, the dean of the Wittenberg Theological Faculty, felt that the, he had to defend Luther against Eck's critical commentary on the 95 Thesis, and so challenged Eck, a professor of theology at the University of Ingolstadt, to a public debate concerning the doctrines of free will and grace. Now, before I go on, just a side note here. The University of Ingolstadt became a Jesuit haven later on. Uh, now, the Jesuits weren't created at this time. It's 1519, but became a Jesuit haven later on. And this is where the ideas that led to the French Revolution, this is where they came from, the University of Ingolstadt. And there's actually a history in regards to the Jacobins and, and what they had to do with the French Revolution, actually written by a Jesuit, interestingly enough, uh, pinpointing that the, it was the University of Ingolstadt that led to the ideas of, of socialism, communism, you know, liberty, equality, fraternity, and all that romantic language that actually ended up leading to a lot of bloodshed, all ties back into the University of Ingolstadt. And also an interesting note on that university, that university is where Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the Dr. Frankenstein, he goes and he learns all of the ideas that he gets where he is inspired to create a man. So where he's inspired to basically play God and create a man. And what happens, he creates this man and gives life to him. And the man is actually a monster. And there are many individuals over the years that have connected Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein and his monster to as an allegory of the French Revolution. So just a side note there, but let's continue on. And this, again, this is from Wikipedia uh, on, on the Leipzig debate. That's what the article is titled, the Leipzig debate. It says this, the Leipzig debate took place in June and July, 1519 at Plessenburg Castle in Leipzig, Germany. Its purpose was to discuss Martin Luther's teachings and was initiated and conducted in the presence of George, Duke of Saxony and opponent of Luther. Eck, considered the master debater in Germany, was concerned about clerical abuses, but his life's work had been dedicated to the defense of the Catholic teachings and combating heresy. Eck invited Luther to join the debate. And when Luther arrived in July, he and Eck expanded the terms of the debate to include matters such as the existence of purgatory, the sale of indulgences, the need for the, the need for and methods of penance, and the legitimacy of the papacy. Eck's debating skills led to Luther's open admission of heresy to avoid being defeated. Luther declared that sola scriptura, scripture alone, was the basis of Christian belief and that the Pope had no power as he was not mentioned in the Bible. Luther condemned the sale of indulgences to the laity to reduce their time in purgatory as there was no mention of purgatory in the Bible. Also, Luther held position on burning heretics during the, the debate. It was in reference to John Huss, was later summarized as hereticos cumberi est 
contra valententum spiritus. It is contrary to the spirit to burn heretics, as one of the statements specifically censored in Exerge Domine. The debate led to Pope Leo X to censor Luther and threaten him with excommunication from the Catholic Church in his June 1520 papal bull Exerge Domine, which banned Luther's views from being preached or written. There was much opposition to the bull, especially in northwest western Germany, where sympathies for Luther were strongest. Again, that's Wikipedia on the Leipzig debate. So actually, interestingly enough, this debate really started between Karlstadt and Eck, but it was really about Luther the whole time, and, and Eck sort of challenged Luther to come forward and in, be involved in the debate, and it expanded from there. And it really morphed from being about free will and grace into being about the Bible and the Bible alone versus tradition, uh, which the Pope, the councils, the, the cardinals, all the, the decisions of the, the church, if you will, all those fall under the category of tradition. So that's what Luther was, that's what Luther was debating against. He was saying the Pope's not in the Bible. Purgatory is not in the Bible. You know, and, and and basically that was his whole standpoint. Indulgences are not in the Bible. Penance, all those things, was pointing constantly pointing back to sola scriptura, and Eck was constantly defending tradition. So really, the the issue was, you know, is it the Bible as the sole and final arbiter of truth, or is it the Bible and tradition? In which case, if one if the Bible disagrees with tradition, then traditions to be taken. And that's really what Eck's point of view was. Now, this led to Eck, you know, basically pointing out the very obvious, which was the Sabbath issue. This is from Johann Eck. This was written in 1533, but it's in reference to the Leipzig debate back in 1519. It's from Enchiridion of Commonplaces Against Luther, page 78 and 79, says this. These are X words. There is no mention of the secession of the Sabbath and the institution of the Sunday in the Gospels or in Paul's writings or in all the Bible. This has taken place by the Apostolic Church instituting it without Scripture. And this was a point that many individuals believed that you know, when it comes to a debate, when they're very close, many times parties will walk away and they'll both think that the person they were rooting for won. But this was one of the issues that was brought up where a lot of individuals said Eck won the debate because of this very issue. He's, he's sitting there and he's basically saying, you know, you say sola scriptura, you say the Bible and the Bible alone, you mock the indulgences, you mock the Pope, you mock the councils, you mock tradition, and yet you keep Sunday when it's not in the Bible at all. So you're upholding tradition while simultaneously uh, condemning tradition, and you really can't do that. You have, to, you have to take the whole thing or none of it. You can't pick and choose what you want. And that's what we talk about with people with scripture all the time. You can't pick and choose what you want out of scripture and then leave the rest behind. You have to take it as it reads, the full counsel of God, the Old and the New Testament together, and understand what God is trying to say to you 
in your day now. It's not what we want it to say. And basically what Eck is saying is that very same thing, but with the issue of tradition. You can't say this council's good and this this the papal doctrine is bad and indulgences are bad, but Sunday's okay. Because all of them are founded on nothing but tradition. And that was his point. And that's why many individuals said Johan Eck won that debate. Though, you know, again, that just really depends on how individuals at that time felt. But this very issue later on comes up again. And again, we they could talk about purgatory, indulgences, free will versus grace, you know, the sacraments, the, the papal infallibility, all those things. But really, the debate is really about the Bible versus tradition. And this was one of the issues that they were dealing with in the Council of Trent later on. The Council of Trent was from 1545 to 1563. It was organized and ran by the Jesuit order who had been uh, commissioned in 1540 by Pope Paul III. And the issue really was, again, between tradition versus scripture. And the Catholic Church was losing a lot of power at that time because the arguments of the reformers were really unanswerable. They're, they're pulling out scripture. This is what God has said. They were putting the scripture into the common language of the people. They could read it for themselves. They could see for themselves that indulgences were not, were not there. The papacy was not there. The sacraments were not there. The mass, as it's understood uh, in the Catholic Church, was not there. And this led to people believing in the idea that, yes, it is Scripture and Scripture alone. And this was one of the issues that they were dealing with in the Council of Trent. Well, things, things, let me say it this way. The Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation over the Sabbath issue gained its teeth. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the Catholic Church's had no they had no argument against against the idea of sola scriptura they had no power against what god was saying in his scripture versus their traditions their councils and their supposed infallibility but this changed again once again because of that achilles heel because of that error because of that transgression of Sunday worship and the reformers not following through, not continuing the reformation and continuing to uncover truth and getting to back to the Bible Sabbath. There was a speech given by Cardinal Gaspar del Faso on January 18th, 1562. This was during the very end of the Council of Trent and this is what he said. The Protestants claim to stand upon the written word only. They profess to hold the scriptures alone as the standard of faith. They justify their revolt by the plea that the church has apostatized from the written word, written word and follows tradition. 
now the Protestants claim that they stand upon the written word alone is not true. Their profession of holding the scriptures alone as the standard of faith is false. The written word explicitly enjoins the observance of the seventh day as the Sabbath. They do not observe the seventh day, but reject it. If they truly held the scriptures alone as the standard, they would be observing the seventh day as it is enjoined in the scripture throughout. Yet, they only reject the observance of the Sabbath as enjoined in the written word, but they have adopted and do practice the observance of Sunday, for which they have only the tradition of the church. That's from uh, the Archbishop of Reggio's address in the 17th session of Council of Trent, January 18th, 1562 in Mansi, uh, SC, volume 33, columns 529 and 530. And this is also quoted in J.H. Holtzman, page 263, published in Ludwigsburg, Germany in 1859. And there's uh, another quote here. From, again, from J.H. Holtzman, and that book by him is called Canon and Tradition, uh, page 263. It says, in the last opening of the 18th of January, 1562, their last scruple was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio, and that's Gaspar del Faso, made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above the scripture. The authority of the church had changed the Sabbath into Sunday, not by the command of Christ, but by its own authority. With this act, the last illusion was destroyed, and it was declared that tradition does not signify antiquity, but continual inspiration. So folks, who knows? Who knows what kind of world we could be living in today if the reformers had followed through. And I'm not trying to beat up on them. They were, I think they were greater men than, than I ever could hope to be because they, they put their, they put their necks on the line for the Lord, but th there doesn't mean there wasn't issues there. And unfortunately this issue of Sabbath and Sunday right there in the council of Trent, it gave the counter-reformation a foundation. It gave the Catholic church a foothold. Again, it was that kink in the armor where Satan gained his foothold and eventually took control. And that's why Protestantism today is in shambles and in many ways is in the lap of Rome today. And it's very sad. It's very sad that just like the founders of the Declaration of Independence and, and the American, the United States of America had that one issue that one fatal flaw, that one mistake, that one sin. The reformers had a similar issue. And who knows what kind of world we could be living in. They're, and they, these, are, these are costly, costly mistakes. Because the Catholic Church, had this issue been dealt with properly, had they gone back to the Sabbath... Perhaps the Catholic Church would have eventually been converted because it would have had absolutely no argument. But because of that, they gained an argument against the Protestants. They were able to point the finger at the Protestants and say, hypocrite, and be accurate in what they said. 
So as we close today, I want to share with you something I've been reading in a book called With Jesus in His Sanctuary. It's by Leslie Harding. And this is from page 414 and 415 on the transliteration of the word Sabbath. It says this, and now a transliteration is, is what the word actually means. So it's, it's a transliteration. It's a breaking down of the root words and finding out what the meaning is behind it. So it says here, Grammarians and lexicographers have given up on the translation of Sabbath and say simply it means rest. This is true of the result of Sabbath keeping, of course, but does not give the etymology of the term. Robert Cox, an Edinburgh attorney of the mid-18th century, spent his lifetime collecting books and pamphlets on the Sabbath, although he was not an observer of the seventh day. Actually, he fought against it. But in 1565, he published a two-volume work, The Literature of the Sabbath Question. In it, he covered every important statement made in the Bible by the Jews on this topic, and then he gave all the statements made by the church fathers and early historians. He worked his way painstakingly through the writings of every author he could find who had dealt with this subject until the time of the book's publication. His compendium has never been equaled. He also published a book which included every statement on the Sabbath made by the reformers, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Melanchthon, Cranmer, and Fox. In his monograph, Septenary Institutions, Cox included several of the suggestions that have been made to, to, provi to provide an etymology for the Hebrew word Sabbath. One of these may appear a figment of the imagination to some, but appeals to this student because of the felicitous way in which it fits into the teachings of Scripture. The Hebrew trilateral S, B, and TH, which forms Sabbath, the B is doubled by the Degesh. Cox suggested the word consists of two syllables, sab and bath, and then proceeded to analyze them. Sab, he said, has ab, the Hebrew for father. See abbot and abbey at its heart. The prefix s is an abbrevi abbreviation of the Hebrew ish, meaning man or manly in the qualitative, not in the gender sense. A word with a meaning similar to that of the Latin vir, which comes from virility, virgin, etc. Converts, converts ab to sab, meaning respectful sir. This syllable, sab, he concluded, has the meaning respected father or reverend father, or some such equivalent. So the, before we read on, essentially what he's saying is that the breakdown of the word Sabbath, if you just take the word sab, the ab means father, the s means manly. So you put them together and it, and it means like the, the reverend father or respected father. Now the second syllable of Sabbath, bath, this is 415 of that book, Cox maintained consists of the Hebrew prefix b, which means in or at and the Hebrew word oth, in some combinations ath or eth, meaning a sign. Together they designate a house or resting place, as in Bathsheba, at the house of an oath, or Elizabeth, God is the oath of her house, or Bethlehem, at the sign 
of the house of bread. Cox's suggestion is that Sabbath may mean something like, wait for it, at the sign or resting place of the Reverend Father. So it's the sign of the Reverend Father. That's what Sabbath means. If he is correct, the definition certainly fits well with Jehovah's own statement that his Sabbath is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. From Ezekiel chapter 20. And you can read that in verse 12 and 20. Isn't that amazing? A possible transliteration of the word Sabbath may mean the sign of the Reverend Father. Literally. So it is his sign. It is his sign that it, it is him who sanctifies us, which again fits perfectly with scripture. So we need to take it very, very seriously, folks. And we need to understand we need to understand that the things that are going on around us, that the things that are going on in politics and in the economy, a lot of people think that the economy is about to crash. I'm one of them. We'll have to see what happens. We don't know. It all depends on what the Lord will and will not allow. The devil has his plans, but the Lord, it's up to the Lord whether he allows things to happen. We may have more time. We may not have more time. Either way, we should be getting ready, getting ready, and getting ready and being those faithful servants, those faithful watchmen on the walls of Zion, and getting this message out to the world. So I hope that was a blessing to you folks. And let's all together finish this Reformation so that we can go home. That's it. We're about out of time. So I'm Cody Moore. You've been listening to Truth Triumphant Radio. God bless.